Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'll be your host today. And it's an immense privilege for me to be joined by Dr. Nancy Frazier. She is Henry and Louise A. Loeb Professor of Philosophy and Politics at the New School for Social Research and a pioneering and esteemed critical theorist. She's here to share a bit about her newest book. It's called Cannibal Capitalism, How Our System is Devouring Democracy, Care, and the Planet, and What We Can Do About It. It comes out today from Verso Books. Dr. Frazier, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Can we start with, with definitions? You know, the, the word capitalism is on the lips of more people than ever. Um, but I also keep hearing occasionally from scholars who say they've kind of stopped using the word, that it's sort of hopelessly vague, that it muddles more than it clarifies. And and your book, while certainly not a defense of capitalism as a, as a system, it's a defense of capitalism as a, as a concept and as a useful concept. And so could we start hearing your case for the word? Yeah, I, I don't think we can get very far in understanding the real roots of the present crisis without using this word. But it's true that while it's on the lips of many people, not everyone has an adequate and precise uh, definition of what it is. And I think part of the problem is that we've come to a point where most people think that capitalism is an economic system. It's a way of organizing an economy. And in my view, that's part of the picture, but it's not good enough because capitalism is actually, as I understand it, something much bigger than an economic system. It's a whole social order of which the economy is one subsystem, one part, albeit a very important part. But equally important in a capitalist society are the divisions between the economy on the one side and the state on the other, between the economic system and the family or the the neighborhoods and communities in which people live. These are not internal to the economy, but necessary supports for the economy. You won't get an economy that can actually function and do what an economy is supposed to do if you don't have families that are producing the workers and are replenishing them and sustaining them and nurturing them. You won't have an economy that can produce products if you don't have nature, the supplier of all the so-called raw materials, the stuff on which the workers labor. You won't have an economy without states and political powers that supply the infrastructure, the legal order, the uh, all, all the form, all the public goods without which private production can't go on. So capitalism includes an economy, but more importantly, it it's really about how the relationship between that economy and these background conditions states, families, communities, nature, how that relationship is institutionalized. 
And my view is that capitalism is a deeply perverse, contradictory, and dysfunctional way of organizing the relation between our economy and our families, our political powers, our natural order. And that's the problem. We need to get at that perverse relationship. Maybe that gets us to the word cannibalism, cannibal. Why, why is that such a helpful word for you here? That's exactly what I was uh, hinting at. Uh, to say that it's a perverse and, and, and uh, dysfunctional and contradictory way of organizing the relation between the economy and its background conditions, for me, is to say that this social system, in effect, licenses or even more strongly, incentivizes economic actors to free ride on unwaged care work, on public goods and politically supplied infrastructure, on nature, to to help themselves to anything they want from there and with no obligation, no responsibility to replenish what they take to repair what they damage. The end result is cannibalization. The the economic uh, process of accumulating capital is allowed to simply gobble up, to devour all these conditions for capitalist production. The, The bad part, though, is that those things are also the conditions for our survival. We're destroying nature. We're destroying the capacity to care the capacity to govern ourselves and solve our problems. That's bad. That is uh, cannibalization at its worst. Thanks. And, and, and you sort of, this book is a lot of things. And one of the things is sort of a conversation between you and Marx, it seems like. And you, you say that he's, you know, he pushed beyond thinking about capitalism only in terms of market exchange and thinking about production. And you want to even push it further. You want to tell the backstories back or what you call the hidden abodes. And so maybe we could walk through those hidden abodes here to get a piece of, of, of what you what you do to show us those. And so you begin with, with structural racism um, and you kind of lay out that, of course, historically, capitalism and racism have been intertwined and they have braided together these histories. Um, and that's left scholars, you know, for decades asking, you know, well, is capitalism necessarily racist or has it just happened to have been racist along the way? And you offer a really rich and nuanced answer, a, a puzzle you give us really. And would you preview what that looks like? Sure. Um, I mean, it, it's a really a, a important question, and um, I, I'm very influenced uh, by W.E.B. Du Bois, and especially by his great uh, book of 1935, Black Reconstruction. Du Bois famously says that in the 19th century, the United States had two labor movements. There was the trade union movement, the socialist movement of the free proletarians that Marx was writing about, but there was also abolition, the movement to end slavery. And that's a labor movement too, but it's about a different face of capitalist labor, racialized, unfree labor, labor that's not so much exploited as expropriated. And the system didn't work then unless there were both of these faces of labor working together. There's a famous line, behind Manchester stands Mississippi. Manchester is the iconic site of the early textile mills in England, but the profitability of those businesses depended on the availability of cheap raw materials, cheap cotton produced by black slaves. So there you already see 
this idea of the hidden abode behind the hidden abode. It's the plantation behind the factory. Marx, as you noted, famously said that the normal perspective of mainstream economics, that's a perspective of market exchange. And if you stick to that perspective, you will never understand where profit or surplus value comes from. You have to get to that. You have to go beneath the, the surface to what he called the hidden abode of production. But what Du Bois showed is that there is an abode behind the abode, an even more hidden abode, and that's the plantation behind the factory. And I sort of took up that idea and and decided to say, well, yeah, so there's the exploited face of capitalist labor, the free workforce, and then behind that is the hidden abode of the expropriated, unfree workforce. Now that was, so far we've only been talking about the 19th century, but I think this is still the case today. Even after slavery is formally abolished, uh, well, we know that uh, after Reconstruction came a kind of counter-revolution, what Du Bois called the counter-revolution of property, which reestablished white planter rule and black subservience in the South, even the uh, in the form of, of, of sharecropping, which was a form of debt peonage. It wasn't officially slavery, but it was hardly free. So um, that's an indication that this didn't end with slavery. And today, you have to factor in the global system of colonialism and then post-colonial imperialism, because even when colonialism is ended, when colonized uh, regions win political independence, that's not the end of unfree labor. Uh, There is still this massive control by international capital of the labor systems in what was then called the third world, we we now call the global south, that um, the maquiadoras, the sweatshops, the brothels, the, the sex trafficked and, and, and migrant workers who are precariously on a territory where they don't have it as strong, even if they have papers, those without papers have no right to be there. Even if they have papers, they are deportable. If anything, you know, go, they, they break any, uh, you know, um, any, uh, you know, regulation or, or whatever. So they have a very precarious right there. And that means that their labor has an unfree element. They are subject to violation. They can't protest. They don't have actionable rights the way that citizens are, are supposed to have. And of course, racialized citizens we know also don't have fully actionable rights. They can be shot down in the streets Uh, with impunity recently. Thank goodness we now see massive protests against this. Uh, But, you know, their rights are very insecure. People with insecure rights are liable to violation. Their labor is not uh, treated. It's not on the same level as that of fully, fully free citizens. Now, you bring in the current neoliberal form 
of capitalism. That was my next question. Yeah. Go for it. All right. I, let let, let I mean, me stop. I think you you asked a question. <laughs> if, I, if I, I think I understand you correctly, you have this the binary between the exploited, the merely exploited workers and then the, the racialized, expropriated, you know, those from whom um, the, their labor and, and their land in some cases is, is expropriated. But as we get today, you're saying that binary is sort of breaking down. You call it the two X's and that financial, financialist capitalism is breaking that down. And so does race matter less in that story then is the question. So this is a really uh, complicated and interesting question. Um, it is true that, this, that, the, that the situation of those workers, usually white or majority or European descended workers, those workers who had managed through labor struggles of the the, the, the familiar sort, who had managed to win real citizenship rights, real entitlements to things like social security, retirement, uh, occupational health and safety, uh, they are, their situation has worsened with the shift from the previous form of sort of state-managed capitalism, New Deal capitalism, social democratic capitalism, with the shift from that to the present form of neoliberal capitalism, which is an especially predatory cannibalizing form, their situation has worsened and um, they're often now not paid a wage sufficient to cover their full living costs. And so they're living off the promise of future wages, maxed out credit cards, auto loans, mortgages that are sometimes predatory. Uh, Of course, uh, their kids uh, are on student loans uh, that have become astronomical, et cetera, et cetera. So this kind of debt, is another form of predation, cannibalization, expropriation. I mean, Marx thought that exploitation meant that the worker was paid for their living costs and the capitalist took the rest. Today's capitalism is not even paying for living costs. So um, this is, I think, a hybrid situation where exploitation and expropriation are somehow merged together in this new hybrid. Now, um, at the same time, a lot of workers of color did enter industry. They left the the southern uh, plantations, uh, even if some of them are now, you know, agricultural workers for agribusiness. And those are often workers of color and and migrant workers. Uh, But but many workers of color did enter industry, although on less favorable terms. They were typically assigned to the dirtiest jobs, the most menial jobs, the jobs that were seen as unskilled and as therefore uh, lower paid. So they too became kind of hybrids in which expropriation and exploitation were going on somehow together. And so we we have come to a world where the expropriated and the exploited are not far apart, not, not so easily sharply demarcated from one another. And that raises this question that you just raised. Does that mean that that race is less important? And I think this is a paradox uh, here. I think we have to say that um, in some, that you could say somehow objectively it should be less important, but in reality, 
it's become toxic because the people who are losing that merely exploited status, they're very freaked out. And they are live. We, we are living in a world where demagogic strongmen are essentially telling these people that you're being replaced, white supremacist replacement theory, and that that the cause of your trouble are uh, is not capital, but it's. It's these dark people who are trying to replace you and whom the liberals are hand in glove with working to, re- to replace you. So this is a situation of real toxic racialization. And, uh, and, and you know, perversely, it's enabled by that very blurring of the boundaries Incidentally, let me add one point. There are people who who understand German fascism and Nazism in these ways. It's it's at a moment where people fear you can't tell who's a Jew and who's an Aryan. That makes this uh, this anti-Semitic form of racism especially toxic and leads eventually to so-called eliminationist anti-Semitism, where it's not you're not trying to keep them in your place, but you're literally trying to annihilate them. And maybe some of the, the these white nationalist supremacists today are in, I don't know, they're, they, it, one, one possibility is that, that their racism is becoming eliminationist. And that would be very different from the 19th century racism that wanted black labor, in its place, in a subservient place. They weren't trying to just kill them off. Uh, anyway, uh, that's those are just some speculations, but very, very troubling speculations. I can't believe we have to move on, but I feel we must. And uh, and the book is overbrimming with ideas and people, I'm, I'm excited people can go continue thinking with it um, out after they go get a copy. But uh, the next chapter you have here analyzes the, what we often think of as the care crisis, um, and you argue we should actually maybe conceive of it more broadly, that there's just, you call it a major crisis in, of social reproduction. And so I invite you to kind of elaborate on that. Maybe playfully we could begin with the, the egg freezing and the breast pumps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, you know, a- as I said, uh, capitalism doesn't depend only on two faces of labor, exploited and expropriated, but there's this third face of labor, which I've lately, even since writing the book, started calling domesticated labor to, to suggest that the labor has been tamed. It's not only that it goes on in private homes. In fact, not all of it does go on in private homes. It goes on in nursing homes, in uh, uh, hospitals, in schools, in all of those social service institutions, some of which are public and others are private for-profit firms running them. And in any case, um, there's a huge amount of work that goes into producing and maintaining human beings as opposed to making widgets, you know, on an assembly line. So it's a different kind of labor. It's a highly gendered labor. It's 
deeply associated with women or with people who are feminized uh, and treated as if they were women, even if they're not literally women. So um, this labor um, is, has been historically unpaid or severely underpaid. It too is not recognized as skilled work, as work that requires intelligence. It's thought to be done through maternal instinct or inherently caring femininity and so on. And so it's kind of enclaved and and hived off from the main productive labor, just as racialized labor was hived off from white labor. So um, here too, Capital is getting a resource that it is, it's getting it below cost on the cheap, in some cases completely free, but even when not free, on the cheap, because it's, it, it's not uh, paid for at its actual value when it's paid for at all, and or it, in, in the public sector where it's better paid, it's paid through taxes and as we know today, what does Apple pay in taxes? Who is really paying our taxes? It's the, the overall working class and the middle class. It's not corporate capital. So there is a lot of free riding here. The, the, the corporations who are the main beneficiaries don't have that responsibility. Again, same, same language, to replenish what they take or repair what they damage, they just bore in deeper and deeper and deeper and more rapaciously and more cannibalistically. They go into bone so that what's the situation today with those people, mainly women or feminized people, whose responsibility in the end it is to keep their families and communities afloat, going, What's the situation? The time crunch. Because these, these we're not talking about full-time housewives anymore. That, that ship has sailed. We are talking now about low-paid service workers who are also the primary caregivers for their kids, for their parents, for their partners, for their friends and communities. So the time crunch, that finally, long way around, brings me to breast pumps <laughs> and egg freezing. So these, we're living in a country that's got a romance with high-tech fixes that doesn't have any um, funded, uh, guaranteed uh, child care. At a, a, a federal, no national right to a place in in a in a daycare or an elder care. So we we don't have any of those European, <laughs> Scandinavian, social democratic, uh, uh, you know, entitlements to social reproductive rights. We are supposed to all be doing it individually, somehow on our own, and at. Uh, and what what do they what do we have? The tech fixes, the 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 uh, Obamacare, bless its heart, <laughs> pays for breast pumps. That's an entitlement. The army pays for breast pumps. 
The army pays for egg freezing. If you you join the army, you can freeze your eggs. What's going to happen to those eggs if you're killed in combat? Nobody asked that question. I don't even know the answer. But the point is, it's a system that doesn't allow people to be mothers and workers. It says you're supposed to do both, but it doesn't create the institutional conditions under which you can do work, do both. So you freeze your eggs. Google says, wait and have your your babies in your 50s, in your 60s. Give us the best years of your lives, your energetic years. Um, Or um, uh, dry, express your breast milk while driving your car to work on the freeway will give you a two-cup breast pump. No hands. You can keep your hands on the steering wheel. It's so automated. It's so high-tech. It's so advanced. This is our idea of how to balance, achieve that that miraculous, much-sought-after work-family balance. Mechanical hands-free two-cup breast pumps and egg freezing. Now, is this a perverse society? Is this an insane society or what? This is nominally an environmental show, so we should get to, get to chapter four, nature in the maw, and, and think about that. And, and before we get into the, the nitty-gritty of, of capitalism's relationship to climate change and things like that, um, I'm, I'd just love to hear you speak a bit about how you assess contemporary environmental politics. The, the phrase that stuck with me um, at the beginning of the chapter is that you, you describe there being a roiling dissensus beneath a superficial consensus. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, I mean, look, this, this is an advance beyond the stage that was dominated by climate denialism. Look, there do exist pockets of climate denialism, but more and more, there is a recognition in many quarters, on, 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 in many ideological stripes, that climate change is real. It's the, the, the term of choice, anthropogenic, although perhaps we should say, along with Jason Moore and others, it's capitalogenic, but we'll get to that in a minute. There's a, a consensus that, it, that, that, that human activity has a lot to do with it, that it's real, and that it's increasingly serious, grave, that extreme weather is everywhere, and that we got to do something about this. And that renewables, as opposed to fossil energy, is an important piece of it. Now, that's a big advance over where we were 10 years ago, right, in terms of public opinion. But that's where the agreement stops, because you have huge diversity of opinion about what it means to take this seriously, what it means to be an environmentalist. You have um, at one end of the spectrum, people who support a Green New Deal. And that's already an interesting recognition to, to go back to the idea of the New Deal and to put green in front of it is already to acknowledge that you have to do this, that what the, that green transition has to involve labor. It's got to be 
a pro working class kind of arrangement. And that to me is a big, important advance as well. It's not about making life worse for working people in order to solve the, uh, the, the transition problem. That's, that's great. But you have all kinds of, uh, uh, you have people who are committed to a very strong degrowth agenda, which seems at least on its face to say, screw labor. (laughs) We're all going to just consume less. And for people who are already struggling, that's a non-starter. And they're right to make it a non-starter, in my opinion. Um, You've got populist uh, Marine Le Pen in France has a green populism, which is all about preserving, quote unquote, our green spaces by excluding migrants. So our green, not their green. Uh, that goes with a kind of eco-populist nationalism. Look, the Green New Deal could take a nationalist inflection. I don't think that's what its best supporters want. But the New Deal was a national uh, thing. And uh, today, uh, environmentalism has to be international and transnational. There is no national solution to climate change. Let's face it. So we have a whole range. We even have green capitalism now. And we have these these huge markets in environmental derivatives, in carbon offsets, in emissions permissions. That's what Kyoto is all about. You you do this through a market. Uh, That's a very different idea to green capitalism, which is about using the state. That's what the, the New Deal was. So sorry, I meant to say I don't know if I said that right. Green capitalism is different from Green New Deal, right? One one valorizes the market, the other the state. So there's a that's what I mean by the roiling dissensus beneath the superficial consensus. And um, here is where I think we really need to get a um, a deeper and more analytic understanding of the relationship between capitalism and climate change. Yeah. And let's, and let's go there. And I, I think when, when you, when people push that and you say capital genic climate change or capital scene or these, or, or just the capitalism causes climate change or any environmental destruction, I think, I think the response you sometimes get is, well, that's, it's oversimplifying it because certainly if you look at a world that we would might all agree is before capitalism, there was plenty of environmental destruction that humans were capable of. And, and, and certainly, and, and in, I think as your term was in self-described post-capitalist societies have been able to do, you know, whatever Chernobyl or, or burn a lot of coal, of course. And so it doesn't take capitalism to emit carbon. <laughs> um, but you still see, you still argue that we need to think about there being a, a structural relationship between capitalism and climate change. So take it away. That's right. That's right. I, if I, if I could put it in philosophy speak, I would say um, overcoming capitalism is a necessary, but not sufficient condition <laughs> for dealing with climate change. <laughs> that, that's a very technical philosophical uh, language. But the idea is, um, is right, that, that these other non-capitalist social systems, whether pre-capitalist or self-described post-capitalist, they certainly 
managed to to screw up nature in major ways, um, but not for internal systemic reasons, for either you could say accidental reasons or because they, in the case of early societies, they didn't have the science to know what they were doing. They, they had to learn by trial and error that you, you don't um, sustain your form of life by massive deforestation. They, 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 uh, we now understand why they didn't, but some of them learned to stop doing that before it was too late. Others not. Um, in the case of post-capitalist societies, so-called socialist societies, they uh, d- they got into trouble for a whole set of, of different reasons. They were in a, um, a in a world system that was overwhelmingly capitalist. They were, for the most part, trying to build socialism in poor, even pre-industrial economic uh, uh, situations, pre-industrial societies, they thought they had to play catch up and had to go really, really fast to industrialize on a, on, with mega projects. Uh, they ha- also uh, didn't know a lot. Uh, uh, climate science for all of us, for them too, was underdeveloped in these eras. Uh, it was only at the beginning. Um, and they, um, they developed very authoritarian political systems. You mentioned Chernobyl. Maybe some of the listeners uh, watched that extraordinary miniseries on Chernobyl on TV a few years ago, which really showed how the, the scientists who were trying to be whistleblowers were uh, being shut down very fast by a, a highly paranoid, uh, 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 you know, authoritarian small circle of people that was not going to, that had a deep investment in keeping this thing secret because it would ruin the reputation of socialism and of the Soviet world. So there were so many things going on there. And it wasn't a hardwired imperative of their system or, let's say, of a socialism that we could build today. It would not be a hardwired imperative of that system to free ride on nature, to just, again, same language I used before, to cannibalize it by just grabbing whatever you want without replenishing or repairing. And once you build in the idea of replenishment and repair, which I think would be central to any desirable form of socialism or any viable form of society at all today, once you build in the responsibility for replenishment and repair, then you no longer have a social system that is incentivizing cannibalization of nature. And that is built into capitalism, in, as, as I understand it. It's about the cheapest inputs possible through slave labor, through just digging up the earth and burning 
what you dig up and the to hell with the consequences. That's how capitalism works. That's how it's made to work. And the attempt to soften it, to say, don't go quite so hard, quite so far, that can lead to, to slowing things down for a while, to softening things for some parts of the world and offloading the toxic waste onto other parts of the world. That's the imperial dimension of capitalism. Um, but, you know, we, we're past that point. We're like at a tipping point. We can't solve our, our climate problem by softening things at the edges. We have to really go, go, go deep and go fast somehow. You say green, I don't know if we can, but, but we have to. You say try. green politics should be trans-environmental. What would that look like? Well, what I mean by that is that the changes that we need to make to the whole energy system, just to begin with, uh, which is only one aspect, but the changes we need to make to the energy system are so massive that either it will not happen at all, or it will happen in some hugely authoritarian way which we don't want, or it will happen because there is large-scale popular support for this. And that's the one we need, that second one, the third one, the popular support. How do you get massive popular support for this? Not by single-issue environmentalism. Not by saying, hey, drop your Black Lives Matter stuff. Drop your Me Too stuff. Drop your $15 minimum wage stuff. Drop your everything stuff and just do climate, climate, climate. That's not going to work. Don't you understand? People have legitimate concerns for other things. And those legitimate concerns when you look deeply at them, are actually connected to the problem of capitalism. Just as climate, when you look deeply at it, is connected to the problem of capitalism. There is one underlying social system that is making life miserable for many different people in many different ways on many different fronts. And if we can all see that and realize that there is a problem, which if we solve it, it's not going to automatically solve everything, but it's going to remove a huge obstacle to dealing with sexual assault, sexism, harassment, patriarchy, with racism, imperialism, genocide, with uh, precarious work, low wages, unlivable living and working conditions. If we realize that there's one social system that's at stake there, as well as with respect to climate, to the environment, to pandemics and public health, because that's the same thing. If we realize that there's one system and we kind of figure out how all our concerns are related to that, different as they are, differently situated as we all are vis-a-vis one another, 
then we've at least got the beginnings of a possible very broad coalition. That's what I mean by trans uh, eco-politics, I say in this book, should be trans-environmental and anti-capitalist. And that's a, a, a little formula, you could say, for a very, very big, broad coalition that could make a social transformation at the scale that we need. Meanwhile, politics is in crisis, as you say in the next chapter. And, and a memorable part of that chapter, you say that COVID should have been, in your words, a textbook vindication of public power, because it was, it was, a, it was a problem of a scale and of a quality that, that, that private enterprise wasn't going to meet and solve. And that in a rational world, the doctrines of neoliberalism wouldn't have survived COVID. But as you say, we don't live in a rational world, we live in a capitalist world. So how did capitalism obscure the lessons of that? And how does capitalism feed on the red meat of political crisis, as you say? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, uh, neoliberalism is a, a form of capitalism that always thought that the market was the magic fix for everything. And that if we could just peel back all those layers of regulation and red tape all of that clunky stuff that got in the way of the lean, mean corporation and market, then we'd be great. Now, um, that people, a lot of people bought that for a while, but I think that neoliberal ideology, neoliberal thinking is in crisis today. And that's not wholly a bad thing, although what is appearing in its place is not necessarily <laughs> a good thing. Uh, that, yeah. that. No, um, you know, um, every phase of capitalist society has to deal with a, a problem. What is the relation between the market and the state? You always have capital chomping at the bit to escape regulation, which is why it goes offshore, why it builds colonies and, and conquers red people and, and invades yellow and black people and so on and so forth. It, it's, all, it's always looking for a bigger field where there's a kind of, let's say, a wild west where it can really just escape uh, real control. And every time it does that, um, political crises erupt. So just as capital cannibalizes care work, racialized labor, and nature, it's got this built-in incentive to cannibalize public power. It's in a contradictory relation to public power. It needs legal systems that guarantee property, that regulate exchange, and so on and so forth. It can't live with disorder. It needs calm. It needs law and order. Uh, it needs infrastructure that it can't profitably produce on its own. It needs public goods that it can't profitably produce on its own. You know, we think that Silicon Valley created the internet, but, you know, Al Gore was right. Actually, the Defense Department created the internet. It funded it at a time when it wasn't profitable. And, you know, I, I'm infuriated by the, the, the idea that Moderna 
is now trying to patent its vaccine, which was massively funded and paid for by the National Institutes of Health. And if they get away with that, that's going to be another outrage. Anyway, um, because these intellectual property and vaccines, that should be a public good. Okay. Um, Capital needs public goods. It needs infrastructure. It needs law. It needs states. And yet, at the same time, it's always chafing at the restrictions that states, it, it doesn't want to pay taxes. We already talked about offshoring and tax havening and all of that kind of stuff, tax evasion. Um, it's, it's in this love you, hate you relation with, with states and with public powers. And that too is a, a, a recipe for cannibalization, for taking what it wants from the state and then weakening. It's, it's driven to weaken the very thing that it, that it needs. It's, again, perversity, irrationality. And so at every stage in capitalism's history, it's been embroiled in weakening the states it needs and precipitating political crises, often by, let's say, by, by capturing state power and eliminating government support for working people, eliminating the programs that workers are fighting for, and therefore driving workers into the hands of fascists or communists or any some other, causing a revolutionary situation that it really doesn't want. So right now we've got Trumpism, which originally won support through a kind of let's say, uh, what would be the word, uh, down market uh, ripoff of some of Bernie Sanders' language about rigged systems and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, promises for infrastructure, which it never capped, uh, promises to do things for working people, to drain the swamp and so on and so forth, to get rid of lobbyists and, and corporate control of Washington, which it, it never did. So it kind of had its own version of free riding on a kind of left populism. Um, You still have left-wing populisms, so-called, in some places. I mentioned Marine Le Pen in France. I I mean, that's a, got a, talks a much um, better class line than Trump now talks. He used to talk one, too. Anyway, so you've you've got these these exclusionary, very nasty. The Republican Party is like it's it's a um, it's a kind of textbook case of capital and political crisis because the 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 establishment of Republican Party is a corporate party, just like the establishment centrist Democratic Party is a corporate party. And you had these two revolts, the Sanders revolt and the Trump revolt, uh, trying to right, develop another republicanism, another uh, Democratic Party. And in, um, in the Republican case, Trumpism really captured the party. And now the, the corporate Republicans don't really know what to do. They are trapped there because Trump can walk away and say, I'm going to build a third party. And they are toast if that happens. Uh, Anyway, we do have a huge, what all of this is to say, that there is no stable hegemonic consensus, no 
shared common sense of what our problems are, what democracy is, what, you know, what, I mean, I mean, you know, what it means to ha- have an election, what it means to have the results of an election. We don't have any consensus about that anymore. We are in a very deep political crisis. And um, uh, this is especially true in the U.S., but Brexit in the U.K. was another form of the same kind of, of crisis. Uh, and we can find analogs uh, elsewhere. This proliferation of strongman politics, Modi in India, Orban in Hungary. You, you could go uh, around the world and, and find uh, Bolsonaro. It's interesting to see what's going to happen in Brazil now. Um, the, the ca- capitalism produces political crises and then has to figure out whether it's going to accept fascist solutions or not, <laughs> you know, which it seems to be able to live with when it has to. It may not be the first choice, but okay, if that's where we are, that's where we are. Yeah, so um, that the political is another realm of cannibalization, another realm of crisis. And the upshot of all of this for me is that we are now living in what I would call, following a lot of historians, a general crisis. This is not just an economic crisis, not just an ecological crisis, not just a crisis of care, not just a crisis of race and and racial justice, not just a crisis of democracy. Neoliberalism, which is cannibal capitalism on steroids, has brought us to one hot mess in which all of these strands of crisis are present, are interwoven, are exacerbating each other. So, yeah, political crisis is a big part of it. If the term capitalism is back in vogue, so is socialism. And you say, as you wrap the book up, that that we need, just like we need to reconceive of what capitalism means, it's more than an economy. We also need to reconceive of, of what socialism means too, you say. And I, I don't want to make you give away and spoil the ending of your book here, but um, but could you give us a little, a little hint of what you mean by socialism for the 21st yeah. century? Sure. Um, I mean, if capitalism is not, is something bigger than an economy, then socialism has to be something bigger than an alternative economic system. Too often, socialism has been understood as we'll have the workers own the factories, they'll manage their own work, they'll organize their own work. But this doesn't yet tell us what is the relation going to be between work and family, between work and political governance, between work and nature. Same problems that we have with capitalism socialism has to answer. So my idea is that socialism is got to be something as big as capitalism. But by the way, I, I often say that just as capitalism is, is, is capitalism is something as big as feudalism. It's not just an economy. It's a whole way of organizing work, rule, war, you know, it's all of that. Socialism too has got to be about all of this. And of course it, it has to be transnational today, which doesn't mean that a world state should decide everything. No, 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 no. There's got to be a lot of devolution and local. Anything that can be solved locally should be solved locally. 
In, but if it's generating externalities that affect others, then it's not really local. Then you have to uh, enlarge the frame and think about how you can have enough local control with, uh, uh, with uh, management, broader management about externalities. And, that, and that's that idea of um, repair and replenish. To me, that's in a way the most important thing uh, that would dis- should distinguish a capitalist society from a socialist alternative. A capitalist society is institutionalized, it's wired to generate externalities that are not repaired and replenished. And a socialist society has to be the opposite. Uh, I, at one point in the book, talk about pay as you go. You don't build up nasty surprises for future generations. You don't build up nasty surprises for dark peoples very far away from you, right? You, uh, you, you have to think in terms of the whole thing has to be sustainable. Their replenishment repair have to be built in at every stage. And I think that's what should be the fundamental principle along with meeting human needs for socialist planning. Planning is a very important part of what a socialist society is. That doesn't mean you get rid of markets. Usually planning and markets are treated as antithetical. You can have, if you have one, you you don't get the other. So capitalism has uh, um, markets and no planning, socialism, all all planning and no markets, but that's wrong. because, um, uh, again, just like anything that can be handled locally should be, there are lots of things that can and should be bought and sold. Healthcare is not one of them. Bernie Sanders is right about that. Basic needs should not be commodities where you have to have money uh, to buy. And what I think of as the sort of tough level of society. I say no markets at the bottom, no markets at the top, markets in the in-between. The top is, what I mean by the top is the big decisions like, um, you know, what, um, how are we going to organize the energy system? How are we going to organize the public health system? Um, How long should the working day be? Are, are we going to like work, 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 produce, 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 produce? Or are we going to be like, you know, South Sea Islanders, take it a little easier and, you know, <laughs> uh, have more of our time for other things. Uh, these are the big questions about what the form of life should be like. Though They have to be, you have to have some form of democratic planning, some way of organizing democratic conversation and deliberation and decision making about that. How you implement it is, is another matter. But um, anyway, I, I don't know what the socialism of the 21st century should look like in any detail. The conclusion of my book is a set of reflections that raise questions and, and a few principles uh, that might guide us in thinking through those questions and arriving at decent answers. The book again is Cannibal Capitalism, how our system is devouring democracy, care, and the planet, and what we can do about it. 
its author and my wonderful guest has been Dr. Nancy Fraser, and it comes out today from Verso Books. Dr. Fraser, thank you so much for your time and for this book. Thank you so much for having me here. It's been a lot of fun to talk with you about this.